On this episode of the Labors of Love podcast, I am joined by very special guest Haley, who goes by the anonymous survivor. We talk about her experiences as a human trafficking survivor. She tells us about her healing journey and advocacy work, and we really underscore the importance of addressing trauma instead of just the behaviors when we are engaging and working with people. Let's jump in. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you're listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I'm extremely excited uh, for this episode today, and I have a very special guest with me. She goes by the, the name The Anonymous Survivor. She's a human trafficking survivor, an advocate, and a social work student. I have today with me Haley. Haley, how are you today? I'm really good. I'm really excited to be here. I am very honored to have you with me. Um, and I, I really am especially excited for my listeners um, to just hear so much of the wisdom, your story, and the resilience um, that you are bringing to this podcast today. So I'm very honored. And I'm going to start, like I start with all of my guests, and I'm going to ask, what is your labor of love? My labor of love is empowerment and helping survivors of trauma find healing. Well, me too. Haley, that. <laughs> so we share, <laughs> we definitely share a passion and a labor of love. And so can you start by telling us um, how this became a passion of yours? Where is this uh, passion to empower trafficking or trauma survivors and, and help them get healing? Where does that come from? I would say it definitely comes from my own healing journey and the knowledge I've gained along that journey. Um, just seeing different things that need worked on um, when it comes to advocacy and different things like that. And um, just seeing a need for like trauma specific services and really helping survivors heal and find the right kinds of services and finding their voice. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about, and I think we could probably dialogue about this a little bit. Why are trauma-specific services necessary? Why, why can't people just, you know, go to a generalist or, you know, just a regular old, if you will, therapist? Why do they need trauma-specific services? So I know for me, um, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder when I was 16. And from 16 to like 20, 21, I went in and out of multiple mental health treatments and counseling, and it just didn't seem to be working. And I kept feeling almost like I was being looked at as like a problem that someone needed to fix instead of a person that needed healing. And it was like people trying to figure out what was wrong with me instead of asking what happened to me and how do we heal that. And so I think that added to what I had already been through. And then um, 
I was also, you know, going through more trauma throughout those years. And it was just like, it was so unaddressed. And when I found a trauma recovery center, that was the first time someone really started to address those, what had happened. And that gave me the ability to heal from that. Um, And those behaviors that everyone had picked at for so long started to reduce just by focusing on what had happened and changing, you know, how I viewed that and how I viewed myself because of it. Got goosebumps. (laughs) Because these, I mean, these are things I say all the time, right? (laughs) But it, I think it is so um, uniquely, I don't even know the word it, it hears it's, hearing it come from you, a person who is like, this is my experience because I'm usually on the other end trying to convince providers, organizations, community mental health agencies, government, schools, law enforcement, exactly what you said. We are focusing on the wrong thing. And I frequently say, what comes out of a person makes so much sense when you understand what went into the person. But we spend so little time really trying to understand and unpack what went into them. Instead, we look at those quote unquote behaviors and it's like, well, how do you just make that stop or go away or things like that? And so thank you for sharing that um, from your perspective. And so uh, if you don't mind, I would really love to, for you to be able to share your story um, with my listeners because it's so powerful and Um, specifically when we talk about, uh, human trafficking, I will frequently say the movie taken was the worst thing to ever happen to human trafficking because it gave this singular narrative of what trafficking was and what it looked like. And it then I believe caused people Uh, to put on blinders about the reality of human trafficking that's happening literally in their backyard, not figuratively, (laughs) literally in their backyard, in the sidewalk in front of their house, in the schools they teach in, in the churches they pastor, because, you know, there's no stealing of a person in a van that my husband likes to call the Craigslist van, you know, the (laughs) sliding doors and no windows, you know, uh, taking someone across the country with Leon Neeson, you know, no, no. And I believe your story can really highlight some of the reality and truth um, that that is another version of the story. There doesn't just have to be one, there are multiple. And I am, I believe yours will bring so much clarity and empowerment to people. So wherever it makes sense for you to start uh, talking about your story and your journey, we would love to hear it. So uh, I know we were talking a little bit about this before we started. Um, I think that it took me a really long time to understand that I was exploited and trafficked because like you said, it's portrayed as people being kidnapped, people being locked in rooms and exploited by their captors. And I'm not going to say that doesn't happen because it does happen that way. But the majority of victims have stories where it's someone that they knew or they left home, ran ran away from another abusive, I can't talk, I'm sorry. (laughs) They ran away from another abusive situation or left home and 
um, ended up meeting a guy who they fell in love with and they trafficked them. And it's the, or it's their family. It's so many, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think. It's just so much, you know, like, it seems that it happens a lot more where it's people that they know. And that's the, that's the real story. But then we portray it as kidnapping. And when we do that, I think we're taking away from people being able to identify victims and survivors, from survivors and victims being able to identify themselves. And that's dangerous. Um, I talk about like on my blog and stuff, on my blog and my social media, like the the danger of misinformation when we misinform people about human trafficking or even I think like sexual abuse you know we teach stranger danger to kids but most of the time it's someone they know Mm -hmm. so how are we going to teach them about those things um so for me I was exploited I was abused and exploited by family members growing up um And that went on for years and I didn't talk about it because I was scared and there was a lot of other things that went into that Um, and a lot of other types of abuse that I witnessed or saw, you know, mental, physical abuse that I was witnessing and just violence that made me scared. Um, And I think that really set up for the rest of the trauma that occurred in my life, that initial abuse in my life. Um, And I didn't realize that was exploitation, like I said, till I got older. But when I was 17, um, I left home and I, I actually left a house that was not abusive, but I only had these little bits and pieces of my memory at that point um, after I had been diagnosed with PTSD. And I was just scared of everyone around me because I knew someone close had hurt me and I couldn't really put all the pieces together because I was still around those people. I don't know if that makes sense. But um, so I left home and I ended up being trafficked by a massage parlor in Columbus. And um, the woman who kind of like coaxed me into that had... I had called looking for a job and she invited me to come there and I went in and did an interview with her and I think people who do this um, key in on those vulnerabilities. They're very good at picking those people who are already vulnerable Um, and she knew, you know, I'm 17, I'm looking for a job on my own to get my own place, then something's probably not right at home. Um, And she promised me all these things. I'll take care of you. Um, We'll love you here. You know, we'll be your family here. And I started and they ended up exploiting me on the very first day that I worked there. Um, Eventually I told a teacher at school. And then the last time I was exploited was as an adult. Um, Prior to that, I had done prostitution and done drugs and stuff um, just because I feel like I got to a point where that's all I thought I was worth. 
because I had been taught that throughout my whole life, that this is what you're worth and this is what you deserve. And in order to receive love, you have to give yourself away. Or in order to survive, you have to give yourself away. Um, and so the last time I was exploited was by another family member as an adult, and I was exploited for drugs. And I ended up getting pregnant with my daughter while I was living with that family member, and I decided to leave um, for her, for my child. And I think that after I left, I went back to prostitution again because I didn't have any money, I didn't have anywhere to go. And um, I got really badly hurt one night by a John. And that was kind of like the final straw where it hit me that if I don't leave this lifestyle completely, like me and my kid aren't gonna make it. Um, so I contacted someone from Salvation Army in Columbus and they took me to a hospital to kind of get stabilized. And then um, I came to where I live currently and I stayed in a shelter and then I moved into transitional housing and I had my daughter and I struggled a lot with her. Um, at first, not having her, I loved her to death. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. But just I had so much going on that it's hard to, it's hard to take care of someone else when you have your own stuff going on. So I think um, I had a kind of a mental breakdown because I still hadn't dealt with the 20 plus years of trauma I had grown up in now. And um, that was what it took that final breakdown to really push me into, you know, I had started interacting with advocates and counselors and things, but that's what really pushed me into like, okay, you need to get this work done because you have a little girl now who is depending on you and you have to get it done for her because she needs you to be at your best and she deserves your best. So I started working with City Lookout, which is a trauma recovery center. They're amazing. And they have just helped me so much with trauma specific services. And now, you know, I'm going to school and um, it's my senior year <laughs> before I graduate. Yes. Thank you. I'd like to go into child welfare. Um, and then I've also been doing advocacy. I've talked at the state house a couple times and just, I really love the work that I get to do now. Um, and I love interacting with other survivors. I'm sorry that just took a really long time, but it's worth every single second. Thank you. You know, I had all these mm-hmms, but I was like, I don't want to disrupt <laughs> anything. Um, no, thank you so much for sharing that. And, um, you know, as a trauma survivor myself, you know, we can talk about it so much that, you know, we, we don't get as emotional as we used to, and we're able to communicate that. But I always want to um, honor that when we tell our story, there's still those parts of us, those younger parts of us, our littles, as I call them, that kind of have to go through it again every time we retell the story and just honor that when we do that, we can just, they've come to trust us as the functional adult 
in their life and they allow us to tell the story because they trust that we're going to keep them safe from those things. And so I just want to honor you for sharing that. Um, you said so many things that I think we could just talk about and, and really, yeah, help people to get an understanding. Um, I was just, <laughs> I was so in them like listening and then I'm like, let me take this note real quick so I don't forget. And, you know, there's just so much there. And so as we move into the dial, as we dialogue about it, to give a little perspective from where I'm coming from in the discussion of human trafficking is as part of my internship um, for my master's degree. Um, and then beyond that, uh, I worked in the juvenile detention center uh, in one of the local counties where I live. Um, and during internships specifically, I met with the young ladies who were incarcerated uh, as a therapist. And that is where I, I learned so much about human trafficking and exploitation of people because so many of the young ladies were being exploited and trafficked and they had no idea. So it is so important that people understand that people who are being exploited and trafficked don't usually have that language and they don't have that perspective of what's happening. And how I began to understand what was happening is because obviously what people say to me is confidential, but I would get very similar stories from different girls all the time. And I began to start putting pieces together about the boyfriends as they were calling them, their boyfriends who, you know, they would talk about who they were missing right? Because they were incarcerated and the fights that usually happened with the girls in jail is because of this boyfriend who eventually they would tell me was older, you know, older than them. And it started off with, you know, their interest in the, 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 the quote unquote boyfriend who we're just going to say the trafficker, his interest in them. Uh, he would buy them things. <clears throat> he knew all the right words to say. Um, so Haley, when you talked about, for example, when you called the place to work and they were saying things like, we'll be family, we're going to take care of you. We love you. It is those kind of words, the vulnerabilities that they were exploiting, knowing that you were seeking. It, it doesn't even take like a lot of deduction. You're 17. You're looking for this job. You're saying, I'm trying to move out on my own. Ooh, mm, they probably not well connected. Don't have, you know, a support system in place. Oh, we'll be your support system. And the things that traffickers are exploiting are very basic human needs. Sometimes it's food, shelter, clothing, but sometimes it's love, a sense of belonging, affection, Right. And so they hone in on that and they promise that. And that's what happened to so many of the young ladies that I was working with in jail. And they would tell stories about like, you know, how good it was at first and they would get their nails done and they would buy them things and, and all of that. And then it turned into, um, you know, this, this process where it, it, it wasn't like that anymore. They would turn cold sometimes and they would withdraw or withhold their affection, you know? And then sometimes it was just, I need you to do me a favor. You know, my boy is having a hard time, just, you know, sleep with him, you know, or do this for me. I need you to run this drug for me. You know, just all of these different things that then eventually led to that young lady 
missing and craving the connection she felt with that person so much that she was willing to do anything for it. Um, and so that was some examples that I would frequently see. Um, I also want people to understand that then other young ladies or women are very frequently used to recruit people into trafficking. Um, my guest, Haley, is, uh, is a woman, identifies as a woman, but I need to be also clear that it is just not girls and women who are being exploited and trafficked, right? This is happening uh, across the gender spectrum, and we have to be aware of that. And people who are non-threatening are often used to recruit vulnerable pop people in vulnerable populations. Traffickers are hanging out at the bus station, the train station, um, places where they know transient youth and people go. People uh, who are specifically looking for those who have recently ran away from home and have not yet developed the survival skills to be out in the streets. I just, I learned so much just by listening to the stories of these young ladies. And at that point, uh, it wasn't about convincing them to, to do anything. The only thing I then felt compelled to convince them of is their worth and their love and how much they can be loved, how much I loved them because they were lovable. And yeah, it was, it was a life-changing experience for me to be able to do this work with these young women. So that's the perspective I'm coming from. And Haley, I truly appreciate the lived experiences that you're bringing. And so from a perspective of whether it was your experience or your work as an advocate, what are some of the things that, you know, um, stick out the most to you? across the stories of those that you get to sit and hold and even your story? What are some of the common themes? So I got to sit on a survivor's panel in February of this year um, at Ohio Human Trafficking Awareness Day with other survivors. And I think that's when a lot really sank in for me because at first I was like, I don't know if I really deserve to be up here because I was thinking that they were all going to have stories of being kidnapped or things like that. And then I'm listening to all of their stories and I'm like, their story is very, and I shouldn't say very similar because, you know, all of our stories are different, but there's more similarities than there is differences. And I think definitely something I noticed is that a lot of us had stories where we had already experienced trauma prior to being exploited. Um, for me, that looked a little different because my, my family had also exploited me, but they had also, I had also suffered abuse. So I think there was still that element, but they were also my first exploiters or traffickers. But I think all of us had a very similar kind of pattern of we had experienced prior trauma a lot of us in our own homes and that led us to being very vulnerable and then I think also just the stories of um having to find like you said find feeling being loved and feeling worthy in order to really start healing and I think a lot of us also had 
to heal from other things like substance abuse and different things. I think that's another big thing um, when it comes to trafficking that I know personal friends who have experienced trafficking through substance abuse in the sense that either they got into it because they were addicted to drugs or they became addicted to drugs while they were being exploited. Um, And I think those two things go hand hand in hand. And a lot of times, you know, we'll treat the substance abuse, but then we're not looking at the connection that it may have to human trafficking. Absolutely. You know, I had someone recently ask me, um, or suggest it was a question, but I think it was more of a suggestion. And it was kind of like, are you just seeing trauma where there is none? You know, are you a person like with a hammer and then you see everything as a nail, even when it's not a nail? And it's kind of like, yes and no. (laughs) One, yes, because when we think of trauma as that event or just a, a series of events, then people would suggest that, you know, not everyone has been trafficked. Not everyone has been exploited. Not everyone has been abused. And, and there's kind of this idea of, you know, stop trying to put things where they're not. Well, when we understand what trauma actually is, which is the beliefs and the worldviews and the behaviors that result uh, from these adverse experiences, when we understand that in the Greek language, trauma simply means wound, W-O-U-N-D, wound. And when we understand that what happens to us begins to inform how we view the world and how we engage with it, no, I'm not just looking for a single nail, right? But this is the nature of trauma-responsive work. And so that's very important that people understand what you just shared. You cannot treat substance abuse without treating trauma. Like it's not a thing. I'm sorry if that hurts somebody's feelings or you cannot treat substance abuse without treating and addressing the trauma, the lived experiences that have resulted in the belief in worldviews and behaviors of substance use that led there. Like it's, it's just not a thing that's effective. And so much of what you're saying, these predisposed experiences you had of uh, trauma in your family of origin and growing up seeded the experiences that would eventually lead to trafficking um, or being exploited um, and prostitution and substance use. Now, what I'm not trying to say is that every person who has experienced abuse will be trafficked or will use substances. That That's not it. But we have to understand, again, that these early experiences that we have in our development really helps us form an understanding of how the world is. Our conceptions of safe and unsafe are developed when we are very young children. And so that, that is huge. I think hopefully what's ringing true for people is if you know or work with vulnerable 
children populations, then these are things that we have to be aware of because the traffickers are vigilant and very, you know, intentional based on their own lived experiences too. So many of the young women who are recruiting other young women are not, you know, tapping their fingers together, sinisterly saying, I can't wait to bring someone into this. No, this is what they know. So they're recruiting, come to what I know. You don't have to stay in that abusive home that you're in. We can form our own families, you know, and, and the things they have to do with their bodies to stay connected to that family is something they are willing to pay to feel like they are part of something and belong to something. So I just think that is, that is huge. I also appreciate that you said, you know, I don't, I don't deserve to be on this panel. Like my story is not unique. I haven't had it as worse or as bad. And we as humans have a tendency to do that. There are so many people who don't believe their story is valuable. They don't believe that they have a story sometimes. And we definitely like to put pain and, and trauma on a hierarchy. So it's like what I've been through and it's like, but it wasn't as bad as, you know, so-and-so. So I, it's not worth it. Or on the other end, you ain't been through nearly as much as I went through. So how can you, whether you think you're at the top of that, that hierarchy or the bottom of it, you know, that's a thing. So those things really stood out. Can you talk a little bit about, and you started to talk about this a little bit, but maybe a little bit more about the impact that the, the various services and treatments that you went through that were not addressing the actual root of these things, how, how those services impacted you and things you learned from that experience, those experiences? So the very first place I ever got services was a child advocacy center, and they did treat trauma specific in a way um but because so when I went there I hadn't I had disclosed I had started to disclose some of my abuse and so they automatically you know said well she has to go to counseling here as part of her being on our caseload and I would not name my perpetrator um so they couldn't like remove me or take me out of the situation and again I only had these bits and pieces so it was scary for me trying to put all this together and they had said you know my counselor at the time had said I don't want to just go into I don't want you to revisit that because I know that you're not emotionally safe when you go home she didn't know who had hurt me but she knew that it was someone in my family that I was still interacting with. And she said, I'm not going to open this up. And then you go home and not, it's not safe. So that was the first time. And that eventually ended because I just kind of aged out of being able to go there. And after I ask you a question, absolutely. Did talk to us about what do you, what did you think at the time about the decision that the clinician made? What do you think of it now? Was that a good choice on her part? I mean, she had to just make a judgment call, right? And in her mind, it sounds like she was saying she was doing it for your safety. Can you talk about, you know, what you think of that decision on her part? Um, so it's kind of hard to look at it now, like as an adult, um, as a teenager, I think that it was definitely very confusing because I just, you know, when trauma happens, a lot of times, like, 
especially if it's repetitive, we disassociate. So that leaves such big gaps at certain moments. And I definitely had big gaps in my memory that like, it was like all these little puzzle pieces that I had to piece together. And that's very scary too, because I was sitting there as a teenager knowing like, oh my gosh, people around me hurt me, but I only have these bits and pieces and I just constantly felt unsafe. And I made a lot of bad decisions because of that, because I made decisions out of fear and I hurt a lot of people. Some of them I hurt that had hurt me and some of them I hurt who hadn't. And I'm not proud of that, but I think that it's kind of what we were talking about earlier, you know, like, I think definitely with kids, especially, we see all these behaviors and those kids get deemed like bad kids, but there's, they're not bad kids, they're hurt kids. So they don't need punishment, they need help. And I think that just that decision kind of, it was hard for me to process because I really wanted to work through that because I really wanted to figure all these pieces out. But now that I'm an adult, I kind of understand that it wasn't safe because I was already, um, the reason CPS got involved in the first place was because I had attempted suicide and then been diagnosed with PTSD. So I was already very like mentally unstable. Um, I hate to use the word unstable because that sounds so harsh, but unhealthy, I guess. Mm -hmm. And like, she didn't want to risk that but it's so confusing for me at the space I was not to be able to work through that with her and just, you know, focus on like the symptoms part. Yeah. Thank you for that. Sorry to interrupt. That was just, I was curious about that. Um, And then where would you go on to get treatment or what kind of treatment would come after that? So I also, after that, um, it's hard for me to put together because like, during the end of my high school, I kind of like was staying with a lot of different people. Um, And I think I just went in and out of mental health treatment, inpatient mental health treatment and outpatient counseling. And it started to become about that PTSD diagnosis is like, it didn't even matter. Like no one wanted to, to focus on that. It was why are you having these behaviors? What's wrong with you? And that did affect me for sure, because then it starts to feel like, wow, if these people who are supposed to be helping me also think I'm bad, which, you know, you talked about like trauma changes our perspective of ourselves and our world and stuff. I already felt like I was bad. I already felt like I was unlovable and unworthy because of what I had been through. And now the people are supposed to be helping me are making me feel like I'm bad. So I really, I felt at some point that like I was unhelpable, like mm. no one could help me. And I was, I don't, I don't know. I just felt very like alone, I guess. And like, well, if they're not going to help me, I might as well keep going back to what I already know. Mm-hmm. And I think that lasted until I got to city lookout. Um, And the very first thing that I worked on with my current counselor, who has been amazing, and, like, I have so much love for her. Her and my advocate have stood by my side through so much. Um, I think the very first thing we worked on was cognitive processing therapy, 
and I had never even heard of that. I had always heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, and we we worked on that, and it addressed all of those beliefs and kind of like changing my perspective of myself and the world and looking at where those beliefs came from and what else I could say to myself and how they made me feel. And that was so important to start with to be able to do the other work. Thank you for taking us through that journey. Um, Again, just so much um, that you're saying, I really appreciate. Um, I love that you talk about it uh, as puzzle pieces. Um, The FETI, I wish, I hope I get it right. I went to a training several years ago um, for the forensic, I I should, I don't remember. But anyway, it was this training for this tool used um, mainly by law enforcement um, when someone has been sexually assaulted. And it is um, therapeutic uh, trauma interview. What's the E? I don't remember the E, Um, but we called it the FETI. And essentially when um, sexual assault victims come to report it's unfortunate that such a high percentage of people don't report, but I understand why, because they are so significantly mistreated. Um, And so people are asking all of these things, well, who, where, what, when, why, right? All of these questions that a person cannot answer. And the biggest thing I took away from that, that training was they said, you know, traumatic memory in this particular case, they were talking about sexual assault, but I'm going to generalize this to say traumatic memory. It's like a 500 piece puzzle that gets shaken up and thrown in the air and the pieces just fall. And you don't have that box, that picture on the box to tell you what it's supposed to look like. So this is where the pieces go. Some pieces are upside down. Some pieces are right side up. And you just have to take these pieces and, and anything that comes through your five senses, something you see, smell, taste, hear, or feel with your skin can activate a puzzle piece. But you have no idea what it's connected to. You have no idea what's on the other side of it. You have no idea the, the big picture that this little piece represents. And so you're just walking around with these scrambled pieces of puzzle with no idea what the big picture is supposed to look like. And that can be such a distressing feeling. You know, as I'm, I'm writing my book, I keep saying it out loud because I need accountability and I am, I'm doing much better y'all. I'm, I'm getting it done. But what happens sometimes, even for me, where I have a lot of intact memories, I will get a piece of something and be like, what the hell was that? Like, and it will be distressing for a long period of time because it's like, wait, what is that? Where did that come from? And I, and it has no context. So what you're talking about, Haley, is decontextualized trauma that's living in our bodies that gets activated. And and, and that activation can oftentimes manifest as a behavior. It's the startle response. It's the snip back. It's the cower and hide. It's the run away. It's the cussing out. It's, It's these activated responses that can look really quote unquote crazy in the moment, but they're not crazy. They're not crazy at all. It is a natural uh, response to unnatural situations we've been through without the context of what got activated. And, And what you were expressing and what I heard was so many people in your life, 
you know, we're just focusing on that response, that behavior, that one puzzle piece that you started to see yourself as, well, maybe something is wrong with me. Maybe I am bad. And these, unfortunately, sometimes are the people who are in your life to help. But when they don't understand trauma, they are re-traumatizing people all the time. And that is so unfortunate. And so I am so glad that you you found, it sounds like it took many years and numerous encounters, but that you found someone who saw you for you and began to help you see you. And sometimes I think that's part of my job. I just hold a mirror to help people see their true selves. And the mirrors that they've been looking at often are like those fun house mirrors. If you've ever been to like a fun house where you can stand inside of the very mirrors and it like, she looks super long or super squat or super weird, right? You look in all these mirrors and it's like, it's amusing, you know, when you know you're in a fun house, when you know that the mirror is distorted, it's funny. But when you don't realize you're, that the mirror is not accurate, you can only look at that mirror and see what it reflects and believe that that's truly you. So for the first time in their lives, sometimes I'm holding an accurate mirror for people when I tell them you are lovable. You are worthy. You are good just as you are. They think I'm the distorted mirror. <laughs> They're like, whatever. Like, oh, you know, if, if this was the case, why am I 40 years old? And no one's ever told me this, right? And so we work patiently through that process. So I, I really appreciate that. And you made a statement um, and you said, you know, I made some bad choices because of the experiences that I've been through. And one of the big things that I try to do, particularly in my training, is help people understand the nature of choice. So I want to start by saying we all have choice, period. We really do. Every single one of us has choice. But the feeling of choice is a privilege to those who experience safety. I'm going to say that again because I think it's worth hearing again. The feeling of choice is a privilege reserved for those who experience safety. What I mean by that is when you feel safe, when you experience safety, when you are not consistently feeling like your survival and safety is in jeopardy, you can use the prefrontal cortex, the cortex of your brain, the, the thoughtful, logical, rational part of your brain to notice what choices you have and make a decision. But you lose access to that part of your brain when you don't experience safety. If you don't feel safe, then that part of your brain you don't have access to. You can't really see all of your options and you are being driven specifically by survival. That doesn't feel like choice. So when people are saying, somebody going out on the street and selling their body is a choice, but does it feel like a choice? To the person who is only motivated under their conscious awareness by survival, and the only tools they've ever been given is their body, that doesn't feel like much of a choice. Go ahead. Me and my counselor have really talked about that too because I'm very hard on myself and I have beaten myself up over and over and over for some of those choices that I made. And 
she has really had to like multiple times we've had to go in and she's had to say, okay, stop. But where did that come from? What came before that? What were the circumstances that you made that choice in? Um, I know because I'll say a lot of times, I wish I would have told sooner or I wish I would have left sooner or I wish I would have told so that other kids in my family could be safe. And I put all this blame and on myself and the truth is that the only person the blame and shame and all of that stuff belongs with is my perpetrators it's not mine to carry but I carried it for so long and I saw myself in such a bad way that I was you know saying all these things to myself and she had to literally stop me and say the same it's so funny because I forgave other people who hurt me before Mm -hmm. I forgave myself And I would make excuses for them. I'd say, well, they went through their own trauma and that's why they ended up that way. And she had to really help me find that same empathy and love for myself and find the empathy for the kid that I was and not, you know, I think a lot of times we take this adult brain that we have, you know, I'm 23 and I put that on the little girl that I used to be and I don't see it from her perspective. And that's not fair because she's already been hurt and she's already been through so much. All she needs is my love and my empathy. So I need to, I had to kind of redirect that and change that so I could give it to her um, and really look at where those choices came from. That's so beautiful. I talk about our littles all the time, y'all. That's what she's talking about, (laughs) you know? And she, yes, she had to come to a point where she realized that the wisdom she has now as a 23-year-old, she did not have as a 7-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 17-year-old, and give that love to those parts. I often try to direct people away from the word choice and instead replace it with the word action. Someone's actions can lead them into a position where they get into a lot of trouble, but I'm hesitant to call it a choice. Because did it feel like a choice to them at that moment? You know, I don't, I think I probably told this story, excuse me, at some time before, but I was robbed at one point. Uh, The irony is like I grew up in the inner city of Detroit and had to move to a suburb of Cincinnati to get robbed. So that probably makes me more upset than the, you know, now the robbers were, you know, they were polite. (laughs) If anything, (laughs) Um, you know, I think they were struggling with addiction. I worked in a restaurant for restaurant management. And as I was leaving, you know, they approached me to get money. I didn't have money. But the point is, when they ran up to me and said, you know, give me the money. And I don't know what words I was using because I did not have access to the thinking part of my brain, but I'm sure I communicated. I don't have any money. They looked at each other all confused. And it's like, well, give me your purse is what they said. Well, give me your purse. Well, here's the thing. I had a choice. I did not have to give those men my purse. I absolutely didn't. Why? Because I have free will and I have choice. Did it feel like a choice in the moment? Absolutely not. And then when they said, well, give me your phone, I had a choice. I did not have to give them my phone. Did it feel like a choice? When they took my keys, it didn't feel like a choice. When they told me to sit down on the parking lot ground, it didn't feel like a choice. So it can be so simple to then look back and say, well, why didn't you just do this? Well, why didn't you do that? It didn't feel like a choice. I did. I, and it's not even I did what. I mean, I did. But this wasn't conscious, people. 
I didn't make a con it wasn't a conscious thing anyway the part of my brain collaborated with my body and it said if we're going to survive this then you do what they tell you to do you if bring it up I'm sorry no go for it you bring up a really good point too so I was watching the I am evidence documentary last night um with Mariska Hargitay and they talk about sexual assault and the the rape backlog um, of untested kids and she was talking about um someone said you know like with with other types of crimes like it's so we don't ask those same questions as much as we do with sexual trauma we don't ask like well, why didn't you do this? Or why did you do this? Because we somehow, but when it comes to sexual trauma, we, we ask those questions and we somehow look for blame in the survivors. And I'm, I just don't, I don't understand that. <laughs> but um, I think that's something that definitely we need to work on as a society and, it can, you know, in our communities and stuff, because I think that it's just, I don't know. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, don't be sorry, girl. I'm over here. Yes. <laughs> we, we asked the wrong questions of the wrong people. We're asking victims and survivors. Essentially what we're asking is why didn't you flock? Which is why didn't you tell someone? Why didn't you seek help? Why didn't you tell someone? That's the flock response. We're asking, why didn't you flee? Well, why didn't you run away? Why didn't you fight? Why didn't you fight back, right? They're asking us why we did not do these biological responses that our body and brain would not allow us to do. You know, you can have a black belt in two or three forms of martial art, but if your body goes into freeze, you can't fight. And you do all these things, but if your body doesn't let you, then, but if someone doesn't understand how the brain and body work and trauma, then we keep asking ridiculous questions of survivors. They had said, um, they were talking about, one of the professors said, you know, they had looked at a case study and they had went and asked the detective why they didn't prosecute this case. And the detective had said, well, she just laid there. So she must have wanted it. Mm. She was gang raped. She, she just laid there. She must have wanted it. And the professor is explaining that was a biologic response that her body did. Our bodies, if we can't, um, you know, there's these three stages. And if we can't ask for help, no one's there. If we can't run, then our body's last resort is to just shut down. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you've been repetitive through trauma, sometimes that might be your body's first resort is to shut down if you've learned that's a way to keep yourself safe. So I think um, really just like we have to start just trauma information is so important because it's so lacking and um, yeah. No, that I'm like, yes, girl, you better <laughs> say that. Yes. What is your body's last resort? What can become your first resort? If you have experienced a lot of trauma, what works works. That's what the brain essentially is saying. If shutting down has kept us alive this far, why would we try something different? 
if swinging first and asking questions last has kept us alive, then that's what it's going to drive us to do first. If getting out of Dodge and running away has been how we survived all of these things, then that's what we're going to do. And so that is just so important. And what I want people, you know, I'm hoping people are getting so much out of this because this is so amazing. It's not just, oh, here's this experience of trauma and trafficking, but now I want people to take what we've been saying and realize that you might work with someone who's been extremely traumatized. You may go to church or synagogue or mosque with someone who's been traumatized. You may teach a child that has been traumatized, you know, have a co-teacher who has been. And so it's not just because we, I don't know, there's this, you know, oh, those poor traumatized people. Those poor traumatized people are around you every single day. I'm one of those poor traumatized people. And so our ability to show up in the world in a, in a way that doesn't automatically say trauma, that's a real thing. But that doesn't mean that someone you sit next to or you interact with on a regular basis has not had the most hellacious things happen in their lives that you could never imagine simply because they know how to put a smile on their face or they know how to show up at their obligations because they're parenting children. They're taking care of their parents. They're, so we have to be able to understand this because it is part of the human condition. And it's the, it's the understanding, the trauma information that Haley's talking about and our ability to respond in a loving, empathic, compassionate way that can contribute to people's healing instead of isolating them into this state of something is wrong with them. If you understand what's gone into a person, what is coming out of them begins to make sense. And sometimes what we need to do is we need to look at what's coming out of them as a way, and, and everybody is not a psychologist or a therapist, no, you know, or a magician, <laughs> any of that. But what it can do is realize that something's underneath it. It's not what's wrong with them. It's what happened to them and what did they do to survive? That's the key. Trauma informed is really good at changing the question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. But when we move from trauma informed to trauma responsive, what we are saying is, and what did you do to survive? Because whatever you did to survive becomes oftentimes habituated into the way that a person shows up in the world. And so instead of demonizing and ostracizing people based on their survival skills, we can go like, oh, there's, there's something underneath that. You know, how can I be compassionate towards that instead of isolating? And, and that, that's huge. I, I believe that's a part we can all play into that. That's something oh, else okay. that I've looked at too, is I think, um, you know, when we think about people have this idea of when a trauma occurs, how that person should react. Like they should be crying and hysterical mm -hmm. and all of these different things. And I think, you know, it really depends on what they've already been through. Because if we have someone who's been through trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma, who's already built in these habitual responses, then they're going to react a lot differently than someone who's had one trauma. Most I'm not, I'm not going to say for sure, but most likely they're going to react differently or someone who has like had a stable life. And this is the very first really bad thing that's happened to them. I'm not taking anything away from that person, but 
they're going to react different. So we can't judge and say that, that, that they're not acting right. So it didn't happen. And that's something else that they talked about in that video. And I was like, <laughs> you know, that makes so much sense. Absolutely. And it <laughs> pretty high on my pet peeve list is whether we're talking about trauma or not. When a person says something like, um, well, I would have, it doesn't matter what you would have. It ain't about you. Yep. And you may have done. First of all, you don't know what you would have done until you get there. Uh, because it's not a conscious decision Two, you may have done that based on all of the experiences you've been through all the data, your body and brain has, but they didn't. So yes, thank you <laughs> for sharing that. Cause that, that is it. Um, I I'm curious if you have, um, an appeal, a call to action, um, anything that you want to share with the listeners kind of as a here's, here's something to take away or here's something you can do. Just what do you want people who may, this may be their very first time hearing in depth about human trafficking or this level of trauma, you know, maybe a person who said prostitution is a choice. And hopefully after this, they're saying, Hmm, maybe, maybe I should rethink that. Is there anything that you have to leave with the listeners or ask of them? I would definitely say um, just like to always remember that everyone has a story and that story is so important to people and just lead with empathy and love and don't base just off of their behaviors, but remember that there might be something behind those behaviors. Um, and then also just make sure, I think it's so important for people to get the right information of where you're looking at information, you know, for human trafficking, you can look at websites like the Polaris Project, um, your task force in your area, things like that. Um, uh, I would, I guess just, just, you know, really being aware of trauma and, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. I thank you. So I do always like to ask my guests um, if they would share a fun, interesting, or little known fact about themselves. Um, you've revealed so much of your story in such a vulnerable way with us today, and I thank you. But is there anything that you would like to share that's kind of a little less known fact? So um, outside of being a survivor and advocate and all of those roles, um, I'm a mom. And I love to draw. Um, I love to write. And those are ways that I've learned to express myself because, you know, sometimes when you go through a lot of trauma, it can be hard to talk about um, because those centers of your brain get shut down. So I think that's something that I really picked up on learning how to express myself and let myself out is through artwork and writing. Thank you. That's exciting. So um, if someone is hearing this and they just have more questions or they want to reach out to you and say thank you, or they want to say, hey, where can I find this information? How can people find and get in touch with you? So I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, um, Facebook, and Instagram under the anonymous survivor. Um, I don't know my exact like 
uh, what are they called? We'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) Um, But I'm on there. And then you can also contact me at anonymoussurvivorthe at gmail.com. Awesome. We will definitely have those, uh, her contact information in the show notes, as well as the resources that she suggested. We will make sure we put those in the show notes as well. Haley, I have such gratitude um, for you taking the time uh, to speak with me today and to share your story and really provide this very um, complex lens of trauma and its connection to um, trafficking with my guests. So thank you so, so very much for being here. Thank you. It is my pleasure. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and as always to you, my listeners, I do not take it for granted that you spend time uh, listening to the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, if you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out at www.thelaborsoflove.com. We are on all the major social media outlets, and please check Check out our new Instagram page specifically for the podcast, the LOL pod, uh, where all information about present and past podcast episodes will be there for you. Don't forget our YouTube channel where every Thursday we host our our therapy Thursday videos. And as always, don't forget to give us that five-star rating, write a review and share the podcast with others. Until we connect again, you all be well.